You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Matt Higgins to discuss Shark Tank, venture capital, and pitching your business to investors. Matt is a shark on ABC's hit TV show, Shark Tank, the CEO and co-founder of RSE Ventures, vice chairman of the NFL's Miami Dolphins, and he has co-founded Vayner RSE with Gary Vaynerchuk. Matt has also previously been the executive vice president of the NFL's New York Jets and chief operating officer of Lower Manhattan's Development Corporation. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and I'm very excited to have Matt Higgins from RSC Ventures and ABC's hit TV show, Shark Tank, here with me today. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start our conversation by talking about your background and your story. I personally find it incredibly motivating and inspiring, and I'm sure the audience will as well. So please talk to us about your journey from how you got started to where you are today. A big part of my background and central part of my history that's shaped who I am today is that I grew up uh, you know, dirt poor. No other way to describe it. Born to a single mom in Queens, New York. And we just struggled a lot in those early years. My mother was incredibly smart and went to college as an adult. And if I didn't work hard, things were going to end poorly. So my career started inauspiciously selling flowers on street corners and selling handbags at flea markets and Basically, like a lot of kids out there who grew up poor, just doing anything to make a dollar. And when I was 16 years old, I had the epiphany that I needed to get out of the situation as quickly as possible. And there was a shortcut, which was to drop out of high school and take my GD. And the reasons I were doing that were twofold. One, I knew that things were pretty desperate on the home front. My mother's health was going to continue to deteriorate if I didn't do something about it. And then second, that if I could enter college early, I would be able to get a job paying a lot more than the uh, $375 an hour I was earning at McDonald's or $5 at the deli. So that's what I did. And I always like to start there when I do any interview because it was the first time that I took a very unconventional path that everybody told me was crazy or I'd be branded forever as a loser. And the first time I realized, you know, everyone espouses to have the answers to your test, but they don't have the context. Right? No one really had visibility into what I was dealing with in the home front. And so their advice was tainted by the prism through which they view the world, uh, which works well for them, but not for me. So dropping out of high school is probably the single most important decision I made to send my career on this trajectory. I know that's unpopular and unconventional. I'm not encouraging everybody to drop out, but I am encouraging them to uh, follow their inner compass. So as you progress through your career, how did that end up impacting you? Well, so many people are conditioned to read books or sort of outsource their judgment to another. There's a great essay by uh, Emerson called Self-Reliance, and he talks about the indignity of recognizing your idea in someone else's words or art, and then you're forced to take someone else's opinion, you know, and, and what that feels like. And so for me, why it was so important fundamentally for my career, it just gave me the confidence to trust my instincts that you could go in an unconventional path that might not be right for everybody, but right for you. And it doesn't matter that it's not in a book on the internet or in some top 10 list, Right that I, I had a special insight. And so what I always tell people, especially young people when they're starting out, everybody's got a special perspective and insight 
that they were all able to cultivate from their circumstances. So my special insight was technically you don't need to finish high school to go to college. And if you did well enough on the GED, you can go. And that was important to me because I felt like my mother's health was a race against the time and she ultimately did pass away when I was 26. So what it did was set in motion a series of, I think, unconventional decisions or going in my own way that built confidence over time. And, you know, it's a big reason why I ended up at 26, uh, youngest press secretary in New York City history and, and 20 years later on Shark Tank. Hearing your story reminded me very much of your fellow shark story and book, The Power of Broke. In the book, Damon talks about how being broke and having nothing but hustling grit is far more of an advantage than a disadvantage. With nothing to lose, you really had everything to gain. So rather than using their current situation as an excuse, how can an entrepreneur today be resourceful and use their shortcomings as an advantage? Oh, I love, I love that. Um, well, number one, I mean, talk to maybe some of your younger listeners, because I get this question a lot when they're starting out, and sometimes you're doing work that feels like pure drudgery, and it's not what you want to be doing in your life. And I always think back to my, one of my early job experiences, I was working at McDonald's, and I was working in the playroom. And you picture all these little mushrooms, like Mario Brothers, like scattered about. And my job was to scrape the gum off the bottom of the chairs. And interesting, you'll be amazed how fast kids can replace gum as fast as you can scrape it. And I remember thinking, like, what is the point of this? Like, as soon as I scrape the gum, somebody else, you know, just goes ahead and puts it back on. I remember one time I slacked on the job and I saw a woman was hosting a party for her kid and gum got stuck to her, to her dress. And I see the spangly spider of gum as she got up. And I'm like, huh, maybe this job does have a role in the universe. And that's less the point. More the point is I would scrape the gum as much and as hard as humanly possible. And I made my, myself indispensable as the top gum scraper you could ever imagine. That ultimately left to a job of managing the party room, you know, a few months later, because somewhere out there in the universe, there was a manager who's known noticing this, you know, 14 year old kid going crazy scraping gum. So my number one piece of advice I have to people just starting out, trust the universe, make yourself indispensable at whatever job you're doing, and somebody will recognize your brilliance and give you an opportunity to do the next thing. And by the way, if they don't, then trust yourself and quit <laughs> and go for the next job. So in terms of entrepreneur, I know everyone told me that dropping out of high school would be brand me as a loser forever back in the day. And something inside me told me, actually, it's not really the truth. If I can demonstrate my capacity to overcome adversity and ultimately go to law school at night, which I did for four years in college for seven years, was on law review at Fordham, that what would be a demerit or a tick against me would actually turn into an asset because it demonstrated my metal, right? So I would say to any entrepreneur who comes from a background of adversity, that as long as there's a juxtaposition of before and after, you started here and end up there, frankly, it's an asset. Sometimes I feel bad because society now values people who had adversity. You know, it's cool to be a dropout, right? But, but like, I, I don't want the pendulum to swing so far that somebody who had a fine life and maybe didn't have adversity, they shouldn't be judged either. So I say to entrepreneurs, wherever you started out is an asset so long as there's a compelling enough juxtaposition for where you are because it proves your metal. Yeah, that dynamic is really interesting because it's swinging so far to the other side. So I'm really curious to see how it plays out in the future. Some type of tragedy or vulnerability. But now to the point that I think some people feel like you have to manufacture it. I always say there's nothing wrong with a stable upbringing. I would have been quite happy had I taken a conventional path. So I don't want to glorify it or romanticize it. And I certainly don't want to judge people who don't have it. Because I had a lot of damage and trauma going through what I went through. And I don't wish that upon anybody. I'm very comfortable. I, I always say I witnessed something when I was 16 that I can't unsee. And I, and I like to generally stay there, which is the, the, how powerful it is to ameliorate suffering in another person's life. 
that if you could accumulate resources, money, influence, power, so to speak, the best and highest best use of that influence and resources and money is to ameliorate suffering. You, you will have no greater impact. It doesn't mean you need to be Mother Teresa and not enjoy your life. But, it, but just when I think back to me as a kid from 16 to 26 and spending all these nights at the ER reading my law school books on the curb while my mother was inside, if, if somebody had reached out and lent a hand, it would have made a transformative impact. She'd probably be alive. And I would have had a different upbringing. That's not a poor me story. That's, wow, think about the power when you now can go ahead and reach out. So I, you know, one of the minor things I do are important to me, but I write these scholarships to support single mothers who run a college where my mother went. Now I can understand the impact I'm making on that person's life when they go home to their kids and say, hey, I just want a scholarship. Like things just got better. So benefit of having gone through what I've gone through is a unique insight of just how powerful it can be to ameliorate suffering in somebody's life. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. 
Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Let's transition here and talk a bit about your experience on Shark Tank. After having been on the show, how is it different than what you might have expected prior to being involved? I think the biggest difference, like I've always been a fan. I watch it with my son. I just love the show. Like anyone who has a dream and you're thinking about transcending, the show is so inspirational, but you assume it's a show, right? And it's a reality show, technically. So I presume that it would be scripted or there'd be a lot more architecting of the whole experience. And I remember sitting on, on the set for the first time and I was completely uncomfortable. It's not like I'm a TV star. All of a sudden, the, this, uh, the maestro, there's like 100 people were scampering around the set, comes out and starts counting down, counting down. Like, what? And then the lights go on. And it's as authentic as you can imagine. There's no hint of who's going to walk through those doors. It's not like cut up. I mean, it is edited, obviously. But my point is it flows naturally for 45 minutes to an hour. And nobody cares if you get a uh, word in edgewise. Like, it's the most impolite, you know, dynamic. So, you know, and at the end, it was very intimidating. In the beginning, it was intimidating. But I kind of, I left there feeling, you know, it's so great that this show that I loved and watched is completely authentic. Because I would have been really disappointed if it wasn't so. It's pretty much what, uh, it's an elongated version of what you see on TV, but it's the same exact thing. Given that it is a reality TV show, that's really interesting to hear. And when you're on there, it's like, whoa, there's no abacus here. Like, and I can't pull out a calculator because that would be embarrassing. Like, your mind is racing. So, and a few things are happening simultaneously, just to deconstruct those 45 minutes. Number one, you're assessing whether or not the deal is worth doing. Is it a scalable idea? You're assessing the founder. Does the founder have what it takes to scale. So you're looking for little tells, little signals, right? Do they acknowledge things they don't know, right? Are they trying to, or are they trying to placate you and agree to everything that you're saying? And, you know, do they have the emotional wherewithal to handle being a founder? Like all those things are being assessed. Then at the same time, simultaneously, you're deciding whether to sell yourself too, right? Because you might be competing. So interesting, they're assessing and deciding whether to sell and then present then potentially selling all in a 45 minute time frame to make a decision. So what I love, thinking about on the shows, can you really assess the, the validity of an idea and the capacity of a founder to execute it in you know, 45 minutes to an hour? And what I've generally found is the answer is yes. The rest is you're filling in what you generally feel intuitively, which tells me a lot that a lot of the assessments we make about a decision, a business, a person are really formed in 20 to, 20 to 30 minutes. So if you're listening out there, you really better make sure you nail it in those first few minutes because the first impressions are everything. Your calculator comment actually leads me to a question that I've always had ever since I've been watching Shark Tank. And so what are the sharks actually writing on their notepads? Are they making notes about the pitch or they may be doing calculations? What, what is going on with the sharks when they're writing on those notepads? Hmm. That's a great question. I wonder what everybody's writing too. I mean, I, I got through, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. I mean, I went through law school and never wrote a single note. You know, I just was like, I don't get it. I never got notes. I mean, I want my mind to be thinking and I would try to borrow other people's outlines or I would read different books, but I, I've never been a note taker. I'm still not a note taker. So sitting on set, I'm like, I guess I need to take notes. But everybody has their own style. I think some are mostly taking notes on questions they want to ask. And then um, deal structure is the, I would say, are the two. It's funny you say that because I'm not really much of a note taker myself. But what due diligence goes on after the show if a deal is reached? There's the screening that goes into the show beforehand. I mean, 40,000 people try to end up on Shark Tank every year. It's a pretty uh, grueling process. And there's a degree of self-selection, right? You have to go through a lot 
to get there. So just getting on Shark Tank, you think about it, is a tremendous achievement. So that's what I love. I love meeting people and thinking like, wow, what did it take for you to get here? So that's interesting, right? If you can get this far, chances are you can get farther, right? So is that journey worth my time and money is a separate you know, question. But then you know, post-deal, you do a deal. You're really diligencing what was represented on the show, right? Because they, you, know, you make representations. This is my revenue. And look, revenue can be cast in a lot of different ways. Are you profitable? Sure, if you exclude all expenses. So a lot of it is really just verifying what was represented on the show and trying to have a meeting of the minds like any deal, right? It's, that's, that's one part of it. But you also then have to you know, come to an agreement. You may or may not have insight into this. From what I've heard is the Sharks don't have any influence as to what businesses get to pitch to them. It's all from the TV network. So you may not know exactly, but in your opinion, what do you think makes a company be able to get onto the show? That's a great point. I said, I'd say probably number one is authentic desire to do a deal. This is not meant to be a nationally televised commercial. That doesn't, that's not good for anybody involved. It's a waste of time for the Sharks, but it's also taking a precious spot from somebody who really needed the support and wanted the investment. So that's one. There's a degree of kind of scanning for validity. And I think if you had raised a massive, massive round before, what's the likelihood that you're going to give enough equity to make it interesting for a shark? I think if they end up with entrepreneurs on the show who have an idea that is just going to entirely fall flat one after another, that's not very interesting. So I assume that uh, the, the great folks at you know Sony who are working on putting it together are trying to make sure that it's an interesting idea and it's going gonna, it's gonna to resonate. It's going to resonate with sharks and it's going to resonate you know, with the viewers. Some things I see and I say, how the hell did this end up on the show? So I, sometimes it's a mystery, right? And then, and then I'll be sitting there thinking, I don't know who on earth would, would get behind us. And the next thing you know, Mark Cuban makes an offer. And I'm like, what do I know? I mean, he's Mark Cuban. But regardless, I, I'm sure they want, it, uh, they want it to resonate with the Sharks because that's certainly not interesting. What I personally look for, like I want to make sure something is generally a scalable idea. I've learned this the hard way, but and this is important for your audience, too, as they're starting out. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And I find that is the hardest question for a budding entrepreneur to ask themselves because you're so excited that you have an idea, that you feel like you're passionate enough you could run with, right? And you feel it could have a modicum of success or a large degree of success, but that you want to bypass that question because it's almost like scary to ask, should I really be doing this? That was like worth my time. And in order to ask that question, you need to forecast your future self and say, okay, if I go down this path, it's going to take me at least three to five years to execute. What would I have been capable of executing in another year? I ask myself when deciding whether I want to back a deal, is this really worth my time? Because small ideas and big ideas take almost the same amount of energy. Is it, and sort of a sub-point of that is how big can the business really be? And then I'm assessing whether or not the entrepreneur has the unique blend of confidence and humility to go the distance. Are they confident enough to recognize that they're heading in the wrong direction and the humility to do something about it, right? Because people are afraid to admit it. Every entrepreneur has to pivot. It's just like obvious, but very few do until it's too late. So a lot of my time I'm spending, I'm asking questions, but I'm also assessing. So I'll give you a tell that I see sometimes. Like if I see an entrepreneur and they're working hard to placate everything that the sharks say, I, for me, it's, a, it's an out right away because now you're just doing everything you can to get a deal. I also don't want to go to a, on a rescue mission. So if I see to somebody who thinks that I am magically going to make the difference in the trajectory of your business, that never happens. is a fallacy. I don't want to be a hero, right? I want to be an investable concept. And three, I really like people who can acknowledge when they don't know the answer to something, but they demonstrate to me they have the resourcefulness to get the answer. 
that's different than not knowing the answer to something they must know, which is their numbers, right? But there's a lot of categories as an entrepreneur that are the known unknowns, so to speak. And I look for people who are, have the confidence to, to acknowledge it. Let's dive into that fallacy because I see it a lot on the show. A lot of entrepreneurs say that they just need the shark as a strategic partner and then ultimately that'll make all the difference. So talk to us a little bit more about this fallacy. Well, right, exactly. Well, I put in this category of hope, right? Like if you can't articulate how a shark or an investor or a partner, this goes for everybody listening, if you can't articulate specifically or with enough specificity to define how a partner, a co-founder, an investor is going to make a difference, then you're relying on hope. And hope is not a business strategy. So the fallacy plays out. Somebody will come on, hey, if I just had Matt Higgins as my partner, Mark Cuban, where suddenly I'd be in every, you know, hope. Like, well, not if the product sucks, <laughs> right? So I think it's unrealistic. Now, when somebody tells me I want to use you because you have access to this massive soccer tournament, right? Or, you know, you and your partners with Gary Vaynerchuk, and I think that Gary can help me with my digital strategy. Okay, that makes sense, right? So I like to see a well-thought-out, you know, a thesis. And usually that fallacy goes hand-in-hand hand with somebody willing then to give you everything you want. I just want to get the strategic partner, so I'm willing to change my entire business model to land. Mark Cuban, to me, those are, those are signals. Has your experience on the show changed how you view entrepreneurship and startups? And if so, in what ways? Has it really changed it? I think what it's done is nourish my soul to an extent. I mean, it's a business and you want to back things for the right reasons. And the right reason has to be to make money because that's a distortion, right? It's not supposed to be about philanthropy. However, I work on these big deals in the day, massive deals, large checks, you know, tens of millions of dollars. It's really amazing to roll up my sleeves and go all the way back to day one and work with these founders and entrepreneurs who are just trying to break through and give them an unfair advantage. The power of Shark Tank is an unfair advantage. One day waking up and now you've got a shark backing you, you've got a tremendous network, and you have the imprimatur of the show is incredibly powerful. So what I love emotionally is seeing somebody who strives so hard to get on that set and then they win a deal. And you could watch in real time over the next six months, their life change. To me, that is amazing. I'm working on something right now and it just brings me like pure joy because I'm watching how them being on the show and us partnering together is going to change the trajectory of their life. Like, I love that. And ideally, you, know, you make money while you're doing it. But that, that hasn't really changed me. It's really just, I'd say, nourished my soul. We've briefly touched on this a few times, but let's dive into it a little bit more. What are the most important characteristics of a great pitch to investors? Whether it be on Shark Tank or not, just in general, what makes for a great presentation that really gets you excited about the company? Number one, is it a big enough business? Is it scalable, right? How large is the, the total addressable market? How big can this be? Because again, rule number one for many small ideas and big ideas take almost the same amount of energy, right? So that's number one. Two, are there signs or indications of early traction, whether the business or if it's pre-revenue or hasn't launched, of the fundamental behavior you're trying to tap into, right? What is the magnitude of the problem you're trying to tap into and demonstrate that there's traction? So example, Drone Racing League, uh, some, some young guy by the name of Nick came to my office with a PowerPoint, just talking about how he wanted to create a new sport called drone racing. And everyone at first is like, what are you talking about? What is drone racing? But he made a very compelling case that all throughout the world, and it was on YouTube, people were racing drones like Star Wars through forests and garages. So the activity already was demonstrated. There was a form of traction, even though it hadn't been launched. But if the business is launched, and it's pre-revenue, 
I want to show, I want to see the ramp up, right? So I want to see however you define traction, both mind share or, you know, in revenue or viewers, whatever. And then three, I prefer to back people who God put them on this earth to make this company. And you were born to do this. You were destined to do this and only you could do it. And maybe only you could do it because you just have the fire and you're crazy enough to kill yourself trying or because you have something special about yourself. So to me, if you could demonstrate those three things, right, scalable, you know, at the end of the day, some form of traction and that you were born to be the founder and then you have all the characters to, to do it, then I'm interested, right? What I don't want to hear is like, if you'll make the difference, if only you back me, then we can do X, Y, Z. Like, well, all right, well, now I got another job. I have, I have 20 jobs ready. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. 
By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Shifting away from Shark Tank a bit, but still on the idea of venture capital and raising money, do you think every new business needs to raise capital from investors if the founders don't have a lot to begin with? And if not, when and why wouldn't it make sense for some businesses to raise capital? I think if you, one, you want to try to keep as much equity, equity as you can on the journey, not just from a, an enrichment standpoint, but actually for alignment of interest. So, you know, when a founder begins to get diluted to such a point that you have only a, a fraction of the dream that you helped create, you get resentful. Maybe you, you know, you just work in a different way. So it's important to be really smart and think about how much money is it going to take to get me to the final endpoint, whatever that may be, and be strategic about the dilution and when you take it. Right. So if you can get a business off the ground with your own friends and family money at a low cost, you know, maybe it's form of debt or you're using your money, then by all means self-fund. At some point in the journey, though, I think the absence of scrutiny from outside investors could actually be a liability. And there's good investors and there's bad investors, there's pain in the ass investors who are way focused on the spreadsheet instead of what you're really trying to do and they panic and whatnot. But let's set aside the, the good and bad and talk about the middle. The middle brings a degree of accountability and oversight. They've been there before. Sometimes when you completely self-fund, you, you miss that and you end up maybe not going on a vanity path, but something similar where you're just not being rational and rigid in your analysis of are you headed in the right direction. So my number one piece of advice, self-fund as long as you can. At some point, though, be careful because you want a, another set of outside eyes. You can achieve that too by having, you know, by having advisors in. I would say just one asterisk for investors generally, the best investors are strategic and make a difference. They're strategic first and their accountability second. The worst investors totally focus just on accountability. But I don't believe investors ever entirely change the outcome. With all of your experience working with startup founders and entrepreneurs, what have you found to be the most important traits or characteristics of a person in order to be successful? And what separates those who are successful from those who are not? Number one, self-awareness is the most important attribute. If you possess self-awareness, you could achieve anything because to persist is to prevail. So if you have self-awareness and you have the ability to persist, your self-awareness will cause you to iterate at those important inflection points, right? So you'll come across a fork in the road, your business model is not working, you're self-aware about what's going wrong, either in the business or in your management style. You'll reflect and you will iterate and you will attack, right? If you're missing self-awareness, you will blame Bob or Mary instead of yourself. You'll, you know, you'll complain that it's just, the market doesn't get how smart you are. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll bark at the moon, right? And so I just think, Self-awareness is so important because self-awareness leads to iteration. Iteration leads to eventually figuring it out, right? Because persistence to me is so entirely important grit, but it's a caveat to persistence. If you persist and keep doing the same thing over and over again, it's a definition of madness, right? So you can't just have persistence. You need self-awareness so you iterate and continue to persist. I know it's very convoluted, but I think if you broke that up, you'd understand exactly what I'm saying. If you were to be stripped of everything you have now, money, relationships, contacts, fame, etc., except for your knowledge, and you had to start over from scratch, where would you start today and why? I would create a direct-to-consumer business. I think 
we are living in such an incredible time where the bar to creating a DTC is still so low. I mean, it's not as was it was five years ago, but the fact that you could launch Hims and 18 months later, it's a billion dollar company. I would launch my own DTC. And sometimes I think about it. I, I, if you ask me what, I, what would I love to be doing off to the side, I would be doing that. We invested a lot of them, but I think it's amazing how somebody anywhere could have a great idea and a great product and basically launch it themselves and A-B test it on Instagram and get tons of data and give it a go. Is there a specific industry or a product that you'd go direct to consumer with? Well, that's probably the problem. <laughs> well, I haven't done it. I haven't had a brilliant idea. I just keep investing in other people's brilliant ideas, which at some point my, my need for self-worth and self-esteem will drive me to have to create my own. But no, I haven't had an idea worth, big enough worth pursuing, which is, I'm actually proud of that because it's disciplined, right? I mean, I've got ideas, but none of them are worth distracting myself to pursue. But I'll come up with something. And I got a lot of good ones that I'm backing me while Moon, we're an investor in Bonza. Also, what's interesting about the word DTC, direct-to-consumer, digitally native brands, that's just a launching pad because everybody ends up having to end up in retail or brick and mortar. But the bar or barrier to entry is very low to go ahead and launch a great product. And you have Amazon, you have Etsy, you have eBay. You just have going direct. It's amazing what you can, what you can do. Matt, thanks so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom with the audience. Where can people learn more about you and all that you have going on? I spend probably most of my energy on Instagram. So M Higgins on Instagram is the best place. I'll be sure to put a link to Matt's Instagram in the show notes so you guys can go connect with him there. Matt, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. That's all for today's interview. But before we end the episode, I'm excited to tell you guys about an offer we have going on right now with the show. For the next few weeks, Anyone who leaves an honest rating and review for this show in Apple Podcasts will be entered into a drawing for a free book or a one-on-one coaching session with me. In order to enter, all you have to do is take a screenshot of your review, post the photo on Instagram, and tag me in the post. I'll then pick three winners at random and contact you directly if you've been chosen. Not only will you be entered for this giveaway but it'll also help the show grow and allow me to continue to bring on the best guests like today's episode with Matt Higgins from Shark Tank. I really appreciate all of your support and I look forward to seeing you all again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.